questions are so powerful and useful. You don't even have to be nice about it. I know as an interviewer, or if you listen to Howard Stern, like the first trick is to normalize what the other person is saying and to be curious about it. But you don't even have to be nice. You can, you can be kind of freaked out or a little antagonistic in your questioning. And people are just, people are really willing to tell you what they think and how they feel, even at the worst points, um, if, if you just seem a little interested. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host and friend, Nick LaPara. I'm so thrilled that you're here. I'm so thrilled that so many of you come back week after week after week. And if you don't come back week after week after week, we need to chat because there are some amazing conversations happening on this platform, not because of me, because I invite incredible people, people you may have heard of, people you've never heard of, and everybody in between, all wonderful conversations, all of them pointing us toward a better life, pointing us toward giving a damn. So I hope you come back week after week. And for those of you that it's your first time because Joel is on the podcast this week, thank you for joining us. My guest this week is Joel Stein. Where do I start? Joel is an amazing human. Uh, I've had so much fun with him. I was going to say my new friend, Joel Stein. Not sure if we're on friend uh, terms yet, but I hope so. Joel was a staff writer and columnist for Time Magazine for 20 years. He wrote 22 cover stories. He was a columnist for, is a columnist for Entertainment Weekly, Los Angeles Times. His first book, Man Made, A Stupid Quest for Masculinity, uh, is the next book that I'm going to read. We were just talking about it a little while ago. I'm going to read that next. And his second book, which is the reason I invited him on, is a book called In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You're Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Yes, that's the actual title. And it's fantastic. It will stretch you. It will grow you. It will make you laugh. It will make you chuckle. It will make your heart grow a few sizes, Grinch style. Fantastic book all around. We dive into, well, first of all, many of you are probably wondering why I'm even having an elite on the podcast on a platform that is typically, you know, told everyone that everyday common people can do all these amazing things. That has not changed. That has not changed one bit. I still believe that. I still want you to pursue that life, but I want to give you a different perspective. I want to help you actually through this conversation see how you becoming an expert, you becoming an intellectual elitist could help you have a greater impact. And I'm not an expert on this topic. That's why I had Joel come on. You can agree or disagree with his platform, but I think he has a ton to teach us. So without further ado, Let's just get right into it. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. I don't want you waiting longer. This is a fantastic conversation. Here's my conversation with Joel Stein on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Here we go. Well, thanks for jumping on. Um, I'm so thrilled to chat with you today. I really, really am. You're always thrilled. Well, I am. I am always thrilled, but I am especially thrilled. I read uh, last year was a kind of a down year for me reading wise. I think I read 65 books in the end. And, um, but your book right at the tail end of the year, because it came That's out That's weird because right? I read 66 books. Oh, no, totally. So, I get that. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd love to see That's your list. That's very close, 65. Yeah. That's really yes. good. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, your book- just floored me in the best of ways. And I'm, so I'm really excited to chat about 
the book and your ideas and really what it means, because I want to juxtapose some of the stuff that we're dealing with in Let's Give a Damn. And just for in case you don't know what things what, what we're up to as Let's Give a Damn, this started out as a podcast three years ago. We are now um, doing social impact consulting. We have local chapters that are popping up all over the U.S. I wanted to find ways for common everyday people to uh, be more motivated and inspired and equipped to care about their fellow man, their fellow woman. And the, you know, the terminology we use obviously is giving a damn. And this conversation, this, this, this book that you wrote and these ideas you've talked about for a long time fit really tightly and fit really well into the, the, this political and societal climate that we're in right now and how I'm having to really, you know, I am a, I'm left, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I guess you could say it. I don't like that term, but I'm progressive, but I talk with, and I lead through my podcast and through my platform, I lead a lot of people that aren't, that are somehow I've been able to toe the line enough that um, they want to listen over and over and over again, 135 episodes now, right? And so I want to continue to get better at that. And I think this conversation that you're uh, that you've started, not you're not the only one that started it, but you're starting it in a really, I think, unique way, um, uh, is very, very meaningful. So again, thanks for joining me. This is super, super fun for me. Oh, good. It's uh, it's nice to see your shack. Yes, it is. It is literally a shack. It's I nice love to it. It's see anything, isn't it? Like it's weird how interesting everything has become. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's a weird. And I really weird. like seeing other people's houses. Like we were talking about Science Live. Like seeing where people live is very yes. interesting. That Tom Hanks joke at the at the beginning of SNL, like you're about to see everyone's homes. They'll look like this. Well, not at all like this, of course, because I'm Tom Hanks. But it's right. really true. Like I've been on Zoom calls with a bunch of people. I'm like, that's Tina Fey's house. Like you know, it's very interesting. And it's a. And what's surprising? I've looked at some comments on that along those lines. People have been surprised how simple homes are, right? Yes. Like when you see these people, Tom Hanks, for instance, uh, you know, he, he has lots of money. He has more money than he could ever spend in multiple lifetimes. And yet his home looked like most of ours. But know? there's such a range because I've, uh, every so often I, I interview a lot of people and I get to interview them in their house. And uh, like in the book, we're, we're about to talk about like Scott yep. Adams' house, like a Dilbert guy. That's yep. not just a normal house. Okay. But then I go to like, I went to Carl Reiner's house for lunch and it was like a medium sized suburban. It was in Beverly Hills, but it was just like any grandparent's house. It was, it, it's such a range in what people do with their money. Yeah. And I just, many people have. Yes. Yeah. 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 I just you assume because people are famous, they have a lot of money. And that's also true. Spending habits or because of how people, the, the wide range and how people make money. There's such a difference. I just saw um, pictures online of Drake's new home. Oh, I need to know. It's, it's completely ridiculous. It's so overstated. There's nothing understated. Every room has a theme. It's nothing that I would ever put in my home, but it's so wildly like overstated in every way. And there are people out there that have just as much or more money than he does. But like you say, their their home is run of the mill like we we probably have homes like those and you know i'm in nashville in probably... house in, in yeah right omaha. in in, uh, in omaha it's like on a, it's on a nice dead end street but it's just a normal basic house yeah he's kept the same house for like 45 years Doesn't why do you think it. this isn't yeah. i mean maybe this has to do with it maybe not i don't know but we're, let's just dive in why do you think that is like what is your theory i mean i'm not looking for anything you know profound but why 
why do some of uh, these people that have money and influence and fame, you know, are gra- they gravitate toward these these extra- the extravagance and then others just don't give a shit about it. Yeah. And a lot of times, maybe it is the money, maybe it's not because like you said, Warren Buffett, he's got yeah. more money than a- anybody. And his house is, there's a million other houses in just Omaha that look like it. Yeah, well, I think your TED Talk gets at this, right? Like you got yourself down to almost yep. no, you're just not materialistic. Like yep. I've been reading, uh, I'm on the, the final, the third part of the Theodore Roosevelt, Edmund Morris biography. Oh, right. And there's yeah. a guy who just, he just grew up with tons of money in Manhattan, builds his house in Oyster Bay, but just has no real appreciation or, and is around Carnegie and all those people, but just has no none of his brain is going to be used for money, yeah. right? He's always, he always doesn't have enough. He's always, you know, spending it or you just, it, it's just not something he cares about. Um, you know, there's those of us who probably could have gone on to be lawyers and make money and chose to be journalists. Not be just cause I don't know. I didn't really think that having a lot of money would be that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same here. If it ever comes, uh, from something that I do, it sort of came to me. Did it? Tell me about uh, uh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, unexpectedly. I, in fact, I remember the moment where I thought it might come because you know I decided to become a, a journalist, right. and uh, I didn't think I'd be poor. I wasn't doing that kind of journalism, but I thought you know I'd make a nice middle class, you know, salary. And then I remember I, I needed an agent or a manager for this thing I was doing, and I was talking to this woman who was a manager. And she said something about how I was going to make a lot of money and in a flat way, not like, right. I'm going to help you. Or she's just like, well, because of this, you're going to, and I was like, I just remember thinking like the way she said it, I was like, that's going to happen. Yeah. And then through mostly through writing television stuff uh, and, and maybe my first book and some other stuff, I made more money than I, than I would have ever guessed. Sure. Um, and it, and the thing, and my parents oddly became richer later in life like after i left for college basically. that's not normal that's not the usual story no no it's usually the opposite they do something right. dumb with their money uh and or, or, or at that point they've just like reached their peak right and then just yes. you know whatever they're, they're, a, man, they're a manager at this point and then they just like they don't make any more money yeah yeah so some weird things happened and um and i remember my dad saying to me that the use of money isn't buying things because you'll enjoy that for like a week and then you won't like it anymore yep the use is it protects you from from problems and i remember moving to la and having some money now and getting a parking ticket and realizing it didn't ruin my whole day and i was like that's a great use of money like my day isn't awful now because i have more money in this parking ticket which bums me out like don't get me wrong Sure, but it didn't destroy my day or my week the way it, it you would didn't. Have. You you didn't get the ticket and say, "Well, now I can't pay that bill next month." You know, um, or just a feeling that, like, yeah, this is causing me a lot of trouble, and I'm an idiot, and like, I, you know, you, I had all those same feelings, but they didn't last nearly as long. Yeah, Dax Shepard. Uh, he he. I listen to his podcast occasionally, and he always talks about the point that he remembers not caring how much gas cost, right? For him, it was getting to the point where he yeah. wasn't saying, oh, it's, 
you know, well, in California, it's 390 over here and 420 over, right? 420 here and 390 over there. I'll just uh-huh. get it here, right? Like that, that kind of switch where it's just not, uh, you've moved beyond that now, I guess, yeah. is, is that that amount of that's money, a, whatever that's that is. That's to me a better use of money than like, I understand the Drake thing. If you're, if you're Elvis Presley and you're 16 and you can build a house now and bury your mom by the pool and build right. a jungle room, but that seems less exciting to me than the not thinking as much about gas prices. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we jump into talking about your book and stuff, I want to get to know you a little bit more. I mean, I can see your bio, I guess, but I want to dig in a little bit more actually, because uh, I find in the now over a hundred interviews I've done with amazing people, famous and not famous alike, I have learned so much about you can kind of start to see connections throughout their life and story. When you hear about, oh, you were brought up this way or this happened when you were younger, and then 20 years later, you did this. Well, that makes sense now because there's some connection there, right? Sometimes. Um, Don't you think we just make up stories? Because I... uh, Okay, tell me about that. I don't know. I was so... This is just one example, but I was so into computer programming when I was 13, you know, 14 maybe even maybe 11, 12, 13, 14. Okay. And if I, and I went to Stanford, you know, during the kind of Silicon Valley first wave. So there, there's, if I had stuck with that, I'd have this amazing story about these programs I wrote that my junior high used. And you'd believe like, Oh, of course he was meant to be this amazing Silicon Valley guy. Uh, but then I tell a different story about something I did in third grade where I created a newspaper with my friend, Tommy Reynolds. And it's like, Oh, of course he was supposed to be a journalist. I, I just think we pick and choose. Well, we all tell stories. I mean, that's the yeah. stories. We use stories to make sense of nonsense. And so, I, so I worry that sometimes we look at these things and they seem to make sense and we're just, you know, it's, it's very produced. We make story. We tell stories to make sense of nonsense. Um, yes, that is so true. That is so true. Okay. So let me, maybe let me pivot this question then. Based on who you are now, what could what could you potentially point back to and say, whether it was a way that your parents like raised you, maybe it's not something you did, but just was there, and, and there doesn't have to be, we can move on from this if there isn't anything, but was there anything, you know, a way that you were raised or some kind of pivotal moments that you can see correlations between you writing these kinds of books and talking about these kinds of things and 22 cover stories for time, like all of that pointing it back or still no? Do you think still think it's, you still think you can bullshit your way through that? Um, I mean, to some extent I can bullshit my way through that, but yeah, I, I can probably draw some kind of line about uh, what kind of kid I was. I mean, I do it in the book, right? I talk about how desperate I was as a kid to, even though I was very shy and a lot of social anxiety, which I still do, I was really looking for a bigger life. And to me, that wasn't necessarily money because you can have a, I think a lot of people want money and the way they see that is the biggest house in their town, kind of more of a Trumpian version where I'm still going to eat the same McDonald's, but I'm going to do it under a silver dome, you know, and I'm going to put gold plating everywhere and have a model life. And that wasn't really the vision I had of what I wanted. I just kind of got in my head that there was a bigger world out there. And this was snobby and, and pretentious and horrible. And I took French instead of Spanish in high school for this reason. But, you know, I wanted to like go to New York city and see plays and uh, eat at restaurants and, and 
I was afraid of traveling, but I wanted to see other places at the same time. So there, there was just a real elitist desire to get out of my suburban town and into a city and into a Ivy League type school and to have these kind of experiences that I knew on some level were out there, but I didn't know how to access. <clears throat> so in the book, I talk about when I first moved after college to Manhattan, yep. I, I quickly realized there was like, because you walk around even now, you walk around in Manhattan and you'll walk by something, there's some party going on in some building that you'll see what it is outside and someone checking names at the door. And you're like, what, what is the James Beard Awards? Like what, what is going on? What's that restaurant opening? What's, you know, and I just would walk around New York City and I called this the loop. And I was like, how do you get into the loop? Like I knew there yeah. was, I, I was seeing it physically, but I didn't know how to get access to that world. And that was kind of a real goal of mine when I first moved to New York. So let's, let's dive in then. Okay. So you wrote this book in defense of elitism. The tagline is why I'm better than you and you're better than someone who didn't buy this book fast. I mean, when I saw that at first, I was, I was either thinking this is going to be a really like dumb book or this guy's going to be fucking funny. And Both. it, it, it well, no, it was, I mean, maybe on your end, but like it was, it wasn't a dumb book at all. It was so, it was so hilarious. Like every page had me either laughing or at least like a chuckle, at least, at okay. least you'd, at least you'd get a chuckle out of me. Right. I'll take but, that, yeah. but every page like drew me in. You're, you're, you're an excellent writer. I'm not just heaping praise on you for the hell of it. I'm, I'm truly saying that as someone who does read pretty widely, pretty broadly and a lot, wonderful book. books. For, yeah. Wonderful book. Um, so the book starts out, right, uh, 2016 election, right? You show up at this party, a friend's party, with a bottle of wine in your hand, fully expecting him to lose. Not just any bottle of wine. Trump Trump wine. Trump uh, sparkling Blanc de Blanc from his uh, the Virginia winery that he bought in his uh, sad attempt to become a member of the elite. Did you think far enough ahead to, like, order that, or did you have that around your, like, home? No, um... This guy I know had me interview him. He writes about alcohol. Uh, and he had me interview him like a year before that on stage. And he gave me that bottle. He had a couple. We opened one. So I had tasted it before. Nice. But it was, it was sitting in my, because I'm a horrifying elitist, it was sitting in my wine cellar. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. I'll bring this. Love it. So you show up to this party fully expecting him to lose. And then he doesn't. Uh, briefly, how did you feel that night? How did that make you feel to fully expect to walk in, to drink this wine, shove it in all of your friends' faces that were hoping that he would win, and then he loses? And again, but you- I didn't have any friends in person hoping he'd win. I went to an insanely liberal party. Liberal party, right. This woman, I live in the, the Hollywood Hills. This woman, four houses up from me, is named Stephanie Miller, and she's a liberal radio host. So it was her party. So I was probably the most conservative person at that party. Got it. Okay. Okay. I, I maybe am mixing up some things, but either way you were hoping that he would lose and he, he did not. So how did you, how did you feel that night? Like what was your immediate reaction? I know that for me and my wife, we, um, we woke up the next morning. We actually went to sleep before he, it was announced, right? Cause it was late on the, on the East coast for us. And, um, she woke up and immediately burst into tears. Like it was this, it was this immediate reaction of, cause, cause I was already on my phone looking and like, just kind of a, not horrified, but just like what just happened. She woke up and said, well, did it happen? 
And I said, yeah. And she just like started bursting into tears, right? Because we were really hoping to not, we weren't, we weren't on the Clinton train either, but we definitely were excited about having, you know, we have three little kids. Like I want our little kids, the first president they ever knew was the first black president. I'd love for the second president they ever know to be the first female president. Like it was just, it was kind of this dream that we had, right? And all of a sudden it was a talk show. It was a TV, it was a TV host, um, you know, and, and uh, a guy that's, has a career ridden with uh, scandals and extramarital affairs, and now he's here. So how did you feel? I got very, I never thought Trump could win, but I got very scared about Trump winning when he started to win the Republican primaries. Because I figured anyone who won, you know, one of the two parties' nominations could possibly win the presidency, especially after eight years of Democrat. So I actually registered as a Republican in California to vote for Ted Cruz, probably the person I would uh, least like to be in a room with of anyone running. And, uh, you know, wound up, he, he, he won the nomination before it got to California. So I, I never had to make that vote, but, um, I, I was watching very closely that night. I had seen through a friend, some exit polling that looked very good for Hillary Clinton. And then I was watching the county by county results on my computer and they were not matching what I'd seen earlier in the day at all. Mm. Kind of radically different in North Carolina and Florida, especially the Latino vote in Florida. And I was, uh, I was at a very physical reaction, which mm. I think was pure fear. You know, the, the fight or flight yeah. response, there's that third option that people don't talk about enough, which is like turtling. It's just, you freeze. And it's what a lot of animals do. And it's not a wholly ineffective reaction to trauma or to, to, or to an attack. And I, I get that a lot. And it's, it was a real physical narrowing of my vision, um, color gone from my face. It was, uh, it was real. I was in New York during 9-11 and I didn't have that kind of reaction to that. Wow. I, I, this, this, was the, this was the greatest you know, like not personal, you know, this was, this was happening to the world. This was happening to me individually, but this was my biggest reaction to anything that probably happened in the world. I was just, it was just fear. And it wasn't because he was a Republican or he was conservative. It was that I thought, Oh, we've picked someone who's experientially and temperamentally not fit for this job. And I don't, and then my specific fear probably was nuclear war or rounding up all the Muslims and putting them in camps or trying to expel every, you know, Latino immigrant. I didn't know what it was, but I had a great, great fear. And and the reality has turned out to be not nearly as bad as what I had feared, mostly because he's uh, much more incompetent than I had thought. (laughs) That's a great observation. He's, he is not smart enough, right. To actually carry out these things. And I think that's smart. He's just not, uh, he doesn't seem to have any interest or ability in focusing on the work compared to the performance. I also think one saving grace is that I have, I have a a laundry list of issues with our, our country and laws and how things are set up and how it definitely favors certain people versus other people. We can talk about that all day long. But I do think that one of the saving graces that our country does prevent megalomaniacs, authoritarian figures to rise up, right? Not fully, like he has done, he's done more than I would like, 
from, you know, as a, as an aspiring, you know, uh, uh, authoritarian, right? But I do think there's been so many pushbacks. There's been so many ways that our country and the way that it's set up has kept them from doing that. Now, who knows if, if those stops weren't in place that we would be in, you know, closer to the place that you feared. I don't know. We'll never know. Thank God. It's impressive though. I mean, I mean, who knows, you know, nothing's permanent. It's just what people decide upon, but yeah, the, the way our, our system was set up from the get-go and the, the way the power is distributed, even though we keep giving more and more and more power to the president, there's still enough power in the other two branches and in the states. And I think you're seeing liberals appreciate states' rights for the first time during this coronavirus. Because states' yeah. rights always meant either slavery or abortion. And, uh, and liberals were always against state rights. Uh, and now I think we're starting to see the wisdom of that. Well, I think, I mean, wasn't it just this morning that President Trump tweeted about, like, everybody says that it's the governor's and states' rights to reopen and close. And he said, but actually, that's my right. Like, I can do that. And all the liberals are, I think, correctly saying, no, that's not true, right? Yeah. And so we are seeing kind of a shift, which, I mean, that is just normal human behavior, I think, when we're pushed against the wall, rocking a hard place. We uh, react differently than we did when maybe things were more on our side, right? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this book, uh, Defending Elitism, is in this political and societal climate seems uh, kind of parody-ish. But this isn't a parody at all, is it? No. And and it was really, it it was very hard to explain this book, even to like the artist who drew the cover, even to the salespeople. Because as soon as you write a funny book, people in this, maybe always, but certainly in the era of like, the Onion and Andy Barowitz and Shouts and Murmurs, like people assume it's going to be parody. And then on top of it, I wrote, I wanted to signal to people that it was a funny book because In Defense of Elitism is a very serious yeah, uh, right. title. So I put that subhead on there that was kind of funny, but that also makes it sound like, because it's funny, it's a parody. Um, so yeah. The yeah. Title so was- it's, it's a, I think you nailed it. If, if anybody reads the full book, they get that you nailed it. It's, it is a funny book that is to be taken very seriously, right? But it's, it's what a- I've done for a living. And so it didn't seem weird to me because I've written a column since college, which had jokes in it, but I always meant what I said. Uh, other than maybe like two shouts and murmurs I've written, maybe that were parodies. Everything I've written, I've meant. So people are like, oh, he's just kidding. And I'm like, no, I'm not kidding. I'm making jokes. And I thought it'd become easier after like John Oliver and the daily right. show. Yep. Cause that's what they do. Yep. Um, so, so I'm in that more in that vein than the onion band. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, let's begin by talking about which type of elite you're talking about. I think this yes, is important thank you. because you may have, I mean, some people may have already said, what the hell is this going to be about? How does this fit into let's give a damn? And I think it does. And so dis- distinguish between what you call the boat elite and why you call it the boat elite and the intellectual elite. Yeah. And it's a little bit of what we were talking about at the beginning about people who care about money uh, and, you know, gold plate their houses. So yeah. So basically I'm not talking about what Bernie Sanders or, you know, Occupy Wall Street would call the 1%. So this isn't about money. Although of course issues of money overlap like they do with everything else. We're talking about, um, cause there are plenty of people, most rich people I've met, you know, live in smaller uh, cities and towns and are, are business people who own a bunch of businesses, you know? Right. Um, and as I said in the book, 
you know, I knew a guy who owned like 12 Arby's in Nebraska and you could own all the Arby's in Nebraska. And unless you were Warren Buffett and bought them when you were super stoned one night, you're not a member of the elite. So I'm talking about the elite, the way that Sarah Palin used the term, uh, the way that the far or the right have used the term to mean the people who, I guess, um, I'm trying to think Rush Limbaugh called the, the four horsemen of the elite. I think that was his phrase, which is, oh, I haven't heard him talk about academia, that. government, the media. Oh my God. What's, I always forget the fourth one. Um, cause I'm probably not in it. Government's it's podcasters. It's podcasters. Is, is no, I'm just pod- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm talking about the people that the right accuses of controlling and, and accurately controlling kind of the globalist agenda. There are people who live in cities, people who are, uh, who have a lot of, uh, intellectual influence and cultural influence. So the, the bo- in the book, I call them the intellectual elite because they're often people who, um, you know, traffic in, in ideas. Ideas, yeah. Probably. And they're the kind of people who, if they don't ask you what college you went to when you first meet, they're dying to ask you what college you went to when you first meet. Uh, and the boat elite, which is a term I started using because, oh God, probably two years ago now, maybe more, Donald Trump as president was at one of his rallies. And he, he, like many Republicans, had been railing against the elite his entire campaign. And at that point, there were two Congress uh, people, two guys running under a, under a slogan called Defeat the Elite. Yep. So this was, you know, the big part of his campaign was being anti-elite. And then at this rally, kind of out of nowhere, I think he ad-libs, why are they called the elite? We should be the elite. We have nicer houses and we have more money and better jobs and, and nicer boats. And I was like, oh, right. And he started like, we sh-, and then he started, because he has a very limited vocabulary, he started calling his group the super elite. Yeah. But in re- and I was realizing people who own boats, and this includes family members of mine, the worst people in the world by far. I mean, we have a, a rule that says if they get, was 11 miles away from us, they can do whatever they want. That's how afraid of them we are and how little we care about them. Yep. There are people who, when they buy the most expensive thing they'll ever buy, the first thing they do is get a bottle of champagne and smash it against it. Yeah. They, are, they like tons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're horrible people. So, so I differentiate the people who are the boat elite did you ever see the documentary The Queen of Versailles by Lauren Greenfield? Mm-mm, no. It was a woman who was making the most expensive, her and her husband were making it, I think the most expensive and certainly the biggest house in the world in Florida. And they, and she bought like seven of everything, but everything was like some crappy plastic toy at Toys R Us. And they were always eating like Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, uh, but their interest was having this like palatial, you know, fake Greek kind of palace. Yeah. Uh, And I thought that was, I think sometimes that's like the ultimate in boat elite. She wasn't very interested in like travel or experiences or food or uh, meeting people. Like my thrill in life is access to interesting, smart people. Yes. Um, And to me, if I, I think about like, being a journalist and being invited to like conferences is so much more valuable to me than things. And that's stuff I can only get from having this job that pays 
perhaps less than a job where I might make more money, but I couldn't buy my way into these things. Yeah. Uh, and to me, there's no question of which of those two things I would choose. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Uh, in the book, you, you say, you say this and correct me if I'm wrong. I think I, I think I took notes down correctly. You said elites are people who think populists are people who believe, cause we're obviously talking about if, if we say the word elite, the, the counterpart to that, the other end of the spectrum is populism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got elites, people who think populists are people who believe elites defer to experts, populists listen to their guts or gut rather, uh, elites value cooperation, populists are tribal, elites are masters of delayed gratification, long range planning and controlling our emotions. I wanna go back to that second line, which is they listen, defer to experts, elites do that, and populists listen to their gut. And that's one of my problems with occasionally myself, right? I'll be honest, I sometimes have gut reactions to certain things that are happening uh, in my own life or on the internet, somewhere in the world. Right. But that's one of my problems with left and right people is when we have what we've done so much of is we have failed to defer to experts. And I think it is more of a right thing personally. I think I've but but I could be totally wrong. I know that the left does it. But we have this failure to defer to experts and we have this. There's very much a culture of how are you feeling right now? What are you feeling right now? And it's all about feelings over facts. Right. Well, on the left, the thing that bothers me. Uh, is when people thank other people for sharing their truth, right? And that, that yeah, I, I'm going to get in trouble. Is, yeah, yep. No, but, but it's, it's, so, it's so true. I dislike. Yeah, because what is that? What does that mean? Sharing, uh, you know, I am a. I come from a very. I'm not there anymore, obviously, but I come from a very fundamentalist Christian background. That was my upbringing, and there was this idea of. There's one truth. That's it. If you don't believe in these precepts, these laws, these ideas, then everything else out there is false. Everything else out there is is an illusion, essentially. And I don't believe that anymore, but I do believe there are fundamental truths. There are things that don't change. And when someone walks in and says, well, my truth is this, and it completely contradicts and maybe even hurts or is very unhelpful in this certain situation, the other person says, well, my truth is this, then you have an endless number of truths, which again, it's not even a truth because a truth, you can't have that many opposing truths, right? Um, And so that is something on the left that I too, I mean, I have very good friends that I think are super well-meaning and I, and I, for some of them, I get what they're saying and maybe they're using maybe not the right language, but I have a big problem with that as well. Because again, if it's not truth, if, if there's, if there are 7.5 billion, everybody living out their truth, then there is no truth. And it's more than just language, though, because sometimes from the left, you you were told, and again, I'm speaking as a white man, but I think it, it's true with other groups, too. You're told that you can't enter the conversation because you haven't had the experience. And therefore, your thoughts or your solutions are can't be valid because you are not familiar with that group's or even that person's experience. And once you do that, we really disconnect as people. So how do we, in your view, and I, I, I believe you, I think I'm totally in your camp there, but how do we, everybody has a different experience, right? That is truth. You know, you've got, I have friends in my friend group. I have situations I'm dealing with right now with people in my, in my sphere of influence that were 
uh, raped by their father growing up, right? Hundreds of sure. times, horrible situations. Now they're t- like not well, right? That's putting it very mildly in and out of the hospital, in and out of treatment, tried to, you know, tried to kill themselves many times, right? You've got that, you got just, and then you got people that had just delightful upbringings, right? With very little uh, pushback, very little friction. And so how do you not go the way of everybody has their own truth and you don't know what I'm going through, so you can't speak into it? but also care for people still, because I think yeah. that is one of, I mean, I'm, I'm leading a sort of pseudo mini movement called the let's give a damn movement, right? It's about giving a damn about other people, places and things. And so I don't want to, I've always struggled with this, honestly, because I don't want to go the way of everybody has their own truth and you can't speak into this. This is how I'm feeling. And you can't tell me otherwise, but also everybody is going through different shit. And so in, in your, in your view, like how, how do, how can we, how can we toe the line there? Or um, do you not need to toe the line and there's a different solution altogether? I don't think you need to toe the line at all. It's just empathy and curiosity, right? Like you have kids. <clears throat> One of the great lessons for me with having a child is like, oh, we are all radically different. Like we are having really different emotional reactions. We're, we're, our brains are taking in different amounts of information. And I don't mean that in some kind of like, pseudoscientific way i mean like oh my son who has sensory processing called disorder but like he is taking a lot more sensory information than me like Mm. he is seeing things i don't see quickly he is um his visual perception is radically different the things he's hearing and bothering him i don't even hear so like just on that level we're all radically different and and not expecting people to be just like you um, and, and uh, making that sound, that's the negative version, right. Of just accepting, but sure. then there's the positive version of just being like curious and yep. empathetic about like these wondrous differences between us is, uh, yeah. you know, people who were raped by their, as, as kids have really different health outcomes. Right. Yep. And like, there's an empathy for that, but there's also a curiosity, like what, why, like, how does that happen? Like, what is um, so I don't know, maybe that, that part I think isn't that hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on some of the, and smartest- that's the part where like I, in the book, we'll get to this later, where I talk yep. about the danger in myself and other people who are in the intellectual elite of our smugness. When we talk about people who voted for Trump as idiots who don't understand and vote against their self-interest because they're soybean farmers and they are too dumb to realize that tariff is going to hurt them. Like, go talk to these people. They're yep. not, they're not voting against their, in- I mean, we're all voting against their interests, right? We're the political science tells us that people vote really altruistically. People will often, if not always vote against their own interests. Like Warren Buffett wants higher taxes, right? We know tons of rich liberals who want higher taxes. They're not stupid. They know it's not good for them, but they want what's best for the country. And the soybean farmer who votes for Trump also wants what's best for the country. So, so the smugness, I think, is the first step in getting towards that level of empathy and curiosity. Yeah, it's a really great point. And we'll get to what you alluded to earlier. We'll get to where we'll talk about Miami, Texas and, and, and other things that you talk about in the book. But before we get there, I think what you pointed out was just really helpful. Some of the, be- some of the smartest, wisest, most intellectual people that I know are those that ask way more questions then they make statements, right? So it is that curiosity you're talking about, right? Instead of going in, knowing what you know about the situation or this person or this thing, ask questions, 
beak in, and I, I love, I love the word. I'm an endlessly curious person as well. I think uh, for, for the most part. And I love that idea because I find when I have my best relationships, including with my amazing wife, who's inside taking care of our three kids, like, when I start making a lot of statements and assumptions about what may be going on with her or where our marriage is right now or just our family, our home, things, shit goes awry like really quickly. But when I start asking questions, say, how are you feeling? What's going on? No, like you did this. Like, please tell me why why you did that. She's an open book. She's she's ready to rock and roll. She's ready to talk about it and, and versus the, the, the walls that would go up if I was to come in and say, why did you do this? you know, in this and this and this and this and make a bunch of statements. Well, we, we need to do that in our homes with our partners, with our wives, husbands, relationships, kids, uh, people we work with, and then total strangers uh, so that we can grow in that curious empathy. Questions are so powerful and useful. You don't even have to be nice about it. I know as an interviewer, or if you listen to Howard Stern, like the first trick is to normalize what the other person is saying and to be curious about it, but you don't even have to be nice. You can, you can be kind of freaked out or a little antagonistic in your questioning. And people are just, people are really willing to tell you what they think and how they feel, even at the worst points. Um, if, if you just seem a little interested. Yeah. Social media, I think has really fucked us up, uh, quite a bit because a lot of that, uh, you know, that the curiousness doesn't come through, right? You can't, you can't, you can't see, it's really hard for people. You're a writer, so you get it. And people that do take time and I'm typing on my, I'm typing right down here to, to just show it, but like to take time to be slower and to say, how is this going to come across? How can I say this in a way that they're going to feel, they're going to feel it through the computer, through the internet that I really want to know their side versus I'm just waiting for my next turn to speak or tweet in this case. Well, it's not just social media to me. There's uh, technology has given us the ability to um, time shift, which gives us a lot of control, but it also mm. feeds the kind of social anxiety that leads to distancing. So kind of what I'm talking about is when I interview people, sometimes people will say, don't have time to talk. Why don't you just give me your questions by email? And like, it's very hard to explain to someone logically why that doesn't happen because it seems on a transactional level, it's like, if you want answers, I'll give you answers by email. And, and it's hard for me also to explain to people now that budgets have been cut, that if you want me to report, I can't just do an hour on the phone. Sure, right. I need to go to your house and hang out with you for several hours before you even start trusting me and, and, and understanding like what I'm about to start giving me some information. Uh, and, and I don't know the questions I want to ask until I start yep. spending time with you. Yep. Uh, and it's hard to explain in a time shifted world where we want to leave a voicemail or not a voicemail because no one does that, but we want to text so that we can send back the perfect text when we're ready instead of, you know, being present for each other and being open and, uh, aware you're never going to get you don't know the questions you want to ask in advance. Like yeah. I remember that as a journalist, I used to, I guess in my mid twenties, I would, when I went to interview someone, I'd write up a list, list of questions. I'd do a bunch of research, write up a ton of questions, show up, ask those questions, ask follow-ups to those questions, but ask those questions. And then I remember I was like interviewing in sync 
at a uh, at the Jean George restaurant. I showed up with my questions for in sync, and they started talking to each other and saying things I would have never known about them, like uh, Justin Timberlake and uh, I'm trying to remember and Lance Bass like to go like I forgot which ones like to go to like places like Jean George. The other ones hated that kind of food and just wanted to go to fast food. These are the the fake poor names they used when they registered in hotels. And I was like, okay, we're going to put away these questions. Yep. I'm going to sit here quietly, let you guys talk and interrupt with questions when I'm confused or feel like you're skipping over something interesting. Or uh, And I after that, I don't think I ever showed up to an interview with questions again. I just, and in fact, I remember driving Barbara Streisand around because I wanted to go on a road trip with her because she was in a movie with Seth Rogen about uh, being a road trip. So I picked her up at her house and I was driving with her and she's like, what do you want to know? And I was like, nothing. Just want to go on a ride with Barbara Streisand. She's like, there must be something you want to know about. She goes, we must have questions. I'm like, nope, no questions. Just want to go on a drive. And then she started talking and I found out like she day trades and she thinks shorting is evil and she won't do, she'll do movies only if it requires her not to drive more than three miles from her house. And like all this stuff that I would have never known if I had just researched her. So it, it, it's to me, you know, that's what hum, that's what a date is, right? You don't walk into a date and ask someone how many brothers and sisters they have. You just hope you just are aware of someone's, at that moment and what they're interested in, what they notice. That's really solid advice. I'm three years into uh, learning how to be, become, I mean, I've been communicating for a long time. I used to be a pastor. That's a whole different life and story, but I've been talking for a long time for a lot of my career, but it's three years since starting this podcast that I've really been trying to get better to really hone how I speak to people and how I get the best stuff out. And I can attest to, I mean, you've been doing it for a lot longer, but I, I fully agree with what you just said, that the conversations where I have, I mean, I hate this pandemic. I mean, I would have loved nothing more than to be in that same room with you because so oh, I wouldn't many, have let you here. Perfect. Wonderful. At least through the, maybe through the voice, you, you, I'm sure as elite, you have one of those like um, speaker phones, right? That we could have done it. So I could at least been at the front door. Yeah, we don't even have that. But yeah, uh, yeah you could have talked to the guard and he would perfect. have relayed some questions. Perfect. But like, T 10 episodes in, so very at the beginning, I got connected to Rain Wilson and he invited me to his home to do his in the interview. And we've since become friends and he's a killer. He just, a, he and Holiday are wonderful humans. But that, so I, I had done with, with way less famous people than Rain Wilson, I had done nine conversations before that only one of them were in person because I wasn't in a place where I could be traveling yet. I was still trying out this podcasting thing. So I flew out to LA, went to his home. I went out there primarily just for this interview. And that's when I really got that sense. I'm in his office out back and I really, really, really felt that all my questions went out the window. The whole hour of our conversation was just at, at, one thing would lead to the other. It was just being curious. It was just listening. It was just knowing kind of feeling when to shift and when to move about. And so, and now, I mean, I've spent, I've lost so much money on this podcast because I've spent, I mean, literally at this point, $15,000, $20,000 in the last couple of years just on plane tickets, traveling to go be with people while I do these interviews. I still, when I, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we're doing it virtually. I still try to not do those as much, 
But I, because I know the power of walking into a room, sitting down with someone, sharing a drink for every person that I've gone to see, I've always like figured out from their assistant or from them, like what their favorite drink is. And I bring it. And that always just, that adds a special touch. And all of a sudden the guard is down and now he can have a conversation, right? Versus, What's Rain Wilson's favorite drink? He g- gets this smoothie. I, it's, I forget which smoothie from, from this market down the road. So they're, they're in Thousand Oaks and there's a m- grocery market right down the road. And uh, his assistant said, stop there, ask for this beverage. It's a smoothie drink. And uh, so I picked up two of them and brought them to his house. And I know it's his favorite because there were literally, uh, Rain, if you're listening to this, sorry for ratting on you, but there were like eight of these empty smoothie uh, 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 plastic things on the ground next to his desk. So apparently he loves these smoothies and has had a few of them. Uh, and hates cleaning. And, and hates cleaning. That was, that was, uh, yeah, maybe he cleaned up afterward. He didn't. He didn't Did care. you enjoy this smoothie? I didn't have it. I got a coffee. I don't. I, I. I'm a coffee holic, so I got a smoothie. I'm sorry. I got a coffee. I got a smoothie for uh, his assistant and him. And um, yeah, so I don't know what the smoothie tastes like, but it oh, was really expensive. Find out what Rain Wilson smoothie tastes like. That I'll, was a lot. I'll, I'll. I'll. I'll email you later. It's in my email okay. somewhere. Uh, or if I can somewhere. ever drive again. Yes, that's right. Um, but anyway, but so no, oh, it's it's also. I mean. Uh, what you do is a little performative. Obviously, interviewing someone for print is also performative, but I try to keep my notebook in my back pocket and only write down things when I want to use a quote. And I try to not write down things right away when I meet people, just to kind of... Sure. The, the more time I can spend before the performance. And obviously, like podcasting is one level and then filming someone from TV. Like At some point you get further and further away from someone's actual self. Yeah. There is yeah. such a thing. So, uh, so let's, let's dive into actually before, well, I want to be respectful of time. I mean, I could, I could talk to you for forever. We're going to talk about Miami, Texas now on mm-hmm. that note, because you talk about, you know, getting Streisand in the car to actually talk with her with no notes, right? That turned into something meaningful. You could have called up and we're going to talk about what Miami, Texas is uh, in a second, but you could have called these people up on a phone. They have phones. You could have said, Hey, I'm writing this piece. Maybe it's a book, whatever. And I want to interview you about this. But instead you packed up your bags and went to Miami, Texas further. And you got this incredible, not that it's all about Miami, Texas, but you got this incredible book out of what you found there. So again, thus proving your point that, you know, uh, just, yeah, this endless curiosity and going to the people and not trying to assume what you, I'm sure you had assumptions going in, but from the book, from the sound of the book, uh, a lot of those, not all of them, but a lot of those will topple down, right? Uh, assumptions that oh, you yeah. may have had. So tell us about, a, a lot of the book is about you spending uh, a few days in Miami, Texas. Tell us why you went there, what you found. So, you know, it's only my second book, so I'm still pretty new at it. I'm still trying to figure out how to write a book. And uh, I guess I was looking for experiences that would a lot of what I do is kind of experiential journalism. Like if I'm gonna write a story about the CEO of Chipotle, I'm going to interview him, but I'm also going to work in a Chipotle for a day. Like I, I need in order to understand things, I kind of like to do them. So I was thinking about the people, how this also when something is upsetting me, to make myself feel better, I try and understand it. Uh, and mm. so the first thing I did after Trump won was try and talk to Republicans I knew 
I mean, it's just a human reaction. I called the people who I knew would say the things that I wanted to hear to make me feel better. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. They're going to tell me it's not so bad. So I, I kind of wanted to go to a place. I looked for the place with the highest percentage of Trump voters. And in reality, that would have been the county which had the highest percentage of tri- primary voters who voted for Trump. But the math on that, no one had done and still haven't done because it's very complicated because people drop out along the way. So it's hard to find out where the true Trump lovers are. So instead, I just found the county with the highest percentage of Trump voters in the general election. And that was the very rural town uh, in Texas called Roberts County, where 96 uh, or 96 point something percentage of people voted for Trump. Wow. Yeah. And so... um, Basically, Roberts County is this one town, Miami, uh, spelled Miami, but I found out pronounced Miami, and then, um, you know, some outlying rural areas. So I went to Miami, Texas, and spent a week there just to, to partly to find out why people voted for Trump, but I almost never asked that question. I just wanted to know what they were like. And what, what surprised you about the people of Miami? Well, I had read Hillbilly Elegy. And yep. so I was, J.D. Vance, wonderful book. Yeah, it really is. And I was expecting, uh, you know, kind of toothless mamas who you know, were in the coal mining industry and had no money. And that is uh, not at all what I found in this town, which was rural. And certainly it, its heyday had been, you know, 50, 100 years ago uh, and, and had been dwindling in population for quite some time and was full of older people. Uh, but they were, they were not poorly educated. They were not poor. They were per capita richer than the people in Los Angeles, for sure. And um, yeah, no, th- so they were mostly worked. There were a couple of old ranching families that had quite a bit of money. Uh, and then who had run this town for a hundred something years. And you can name anyone who's from this area can name those six families. But then there was the rest of the town was mostly um, in the oil and gas industry. BP had been there, and now it's a different company. But there was a, a lot of natural gas. In fact, T. Boone Pickens, who was alive at the time, had a huge ranch uh, just north of Miami, where like you know Dick Cheney would come visit and stuff. So there was there was there was money around for sure. And these people had mostly gone to um, trying to remember the name of the college. There's a, a sizable college in Texas, not far from there. They were extraordinarily Christian uh, to a greater degree than I probably would have assumed. And they were uh, white to the, to the person. Uh, so, but then they were super friendly. Yeah. Cause I tried, I'd been trying to talk to the mayor of that town. who wasn't that responsive. And I was nervous, very nervous about going. And I had talked to other conservatives at that time and, what was starting to happen, which has happened more now, is that conservatives were not willing to talk to the mainstream media anymore. They had felt like they'd been given a bum rap, and the mainstream media was clearly anti-Trump, and, and they, didn't, they didn't want to engage. They felt like they were going to get screwed over, and they were angry at the media. So getting people who are conservative to talk to me is hard. And then I had noticed a couple of years before that, if you were able to talk to someone, on the right. Like if I was, I spent a couple of days with Milo Yiannopoulos for business week. And if you wanted quotes 
I also did a cover on trolls for Time Magazine. And if I had talked to, you know, a right-wing troll, getting someone from the left to talk to me was impossible because they would say, well, you're platforming this other person. And if you're giving them a way to speak, I'm not going to help you. And this was all pretty new. Like pe people from both sides had trusted, uh, and I can get into why I think that happened, but media more. So I was having trouble getting conservatives to talk to me. So I was very nervous about going there and seeing if people would talk to me. And I had an amazing time. I didn't, I got lucky. I met a woman who was running this quote unquote bed and breakfast. I stayed at, no, it, it was a bed and breakfast. I stayed at, and she introduced me to her friends and that really, you know, the next morning after I got there. So that really saved me. I mean, yeah. I, I can't talk about how much that saved me. I got really lucky, but uh, I didn't pay for one meal when I was down there. I don't think I was, eat, you know, there was only one restaurant. But I was eating in people's houses every night and for lunch. And, uh, and people really opened up to me in a way I, I appreciated and wanted to respect. Do you think any of them left there with a better, or when you left, did you leave them with a better taste in their mouths about the mainstream media? Or was it more like, we still don't trust them. We'll trust you. Or do you think they were like, well, maybe you're not all so bad. Or do you, do you not have a sense as to whether that happened for them? Well, you know, most people, as is true with any population, don't really care about this stuff that much. So uh, the people who were really angry at the mainstream media, which is probably a small percentage, look, most people who vote don't really care about politics. You know, so yeah. it's not like they're sitting there watching Fox News all day and screaming about the liberal media. But those who did have a bad taste in their mouth, I... I yeah, I think they came to respect what I did because I think they thought that I, you know, it's, it's what we talked about a minute ago. Like, instead of just being CNN and showing up and being transactional and getting my piece and leaving, I, I may have not written everything fairly. I may not have um, agreed with them, but at least I listened and I spent time. And I think people, like, you, like we were saying a minute ago by asking questions, like, if you just do that, people will people will forgive a lot because at least you listened. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. You also talked to uh, okay. Before I move on, I want to talk about Tucker Carlson real quickly. Scott Adams, you, and then you spent a day with Mayor Eric Garcetti, whom I you know respect and I like a lot, even though I don't live in LA. What didn't? So you talked about things that surprised you. Super kind, educated didn't pay for a meal while you were there. You know, there's all these amazing things. I, I, when I was reading the book, I've never even met these people, but I kind of made a mental note that someday if I'm ever near within, within a, a few hundred miles of Miami, like I want to stop by and just say, you guys seem awesome. Like, can I get some of that? Because I, it did, it did really, I felt like as I read about them, my, you know, uh, what did the Grinch, you know, when his heart grows two sizes, yeah. right? Like I felt like, oh, these are people, I mean, I already knew that because I have, I have family that voted for Trump and I, I have a lot of people in my sphere of influence that, you know, voted for Trump and still may, you know, this coming November. And I know they're not that way. I know they're not all racist, racist, xenophobic bigots, yes. you know, like they're not that way at all. They're loving people, hardworking, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so anyway, I, you really shared them in a way that, I think for me and for many other people, like we actually got connected with the people of Miami there a little bit. And so you did share some things that surprised you. What didn't su surprise you about going to visit the zip code 
that with the highest percentage of Trump voters. Did anything not surprise you? Well, they were all they were pretty well traveled, which did surprise me. But at the same time, their their vision of my life, which was not, I mean, I'll, I'll explain what it is, is not inaccurate, was um, so negative that mm. that surprised me. Uh, I mean, they they liked visiting cities, but they would they think the idea of living in a city where you're looking at your phone all day, you li- you might not even know the people on your block, no less. I mean, honestly, my wife and I, when there's an open house on our block, we like flock to it because we're so curious about what the inside of the house looks like. We haven't seen the inside of our neighbor's houses. Like, mm. that's hard for them to understand. They find our cities to be dirty, full of homeless people, not inaccurate, um, loud. Uh, they see it as dystopic. And they see the globalization and the citification of the world as dystopic. And something that they have to stop. Now, just because the people of Miami are super nice doesn't mean that I don't think that their vision of the world isn't dangerous. And and I'm just as worried as I was before about the move towards populism and especially authoritarianism. And you know, I think shutting down globalism is is extraordinarily dangerous. So just because they live lives that I can learn from and they do they gather on their porches every night with their neighbors and hang out and and in a lot of ways and go to their church and have you know a big dinner after church or lunch after church and in a way that I really envied uh doesn't mean that I didn't think their voting was was really dangerous and small-minded and wrong yeah, I've, I've found that over and over again, Joel, with people that I have come to, you know, it's been three years now. Like we have to, if, if we're going to live a healthy life mentally, physically, emotionally, we have to, I think we have to do some of what we're talking about with people that we don't agree with, right? And you did it kind of in a big exposed way in this book with the people of Miami. But I've been doing it over the years, right? Just learning from people and not, but as you rightly point out, that doesn't mean that I have fewer reservations about their worldview. I mean, just the other day, one of my close friends who I love and is a, he's a, he's a wonderful husband. I envy some of his like husband stuff and great kids and, you know, wonderful Christian and all of that stuff. He called Elizabeth Warren an abortionist. Uh, and, and, and I, I pushed back and I said, wait, wait, wait. So you're going to, so wait, an abortionist is someone who commits, who actually had, you know, doesn't doesn't abortion induces an abortion? Uh, I guarantee you, Elizabeth Warren's never done that in a day in her life. So because of her pro-choice views, her you know uh, you're gonna you're gonna make that extreme. I mean, that is an extreme statement to say that anybody that um, you know is a is a pro-choicer is a murderer or an abortionist, someone who actually does the physical abortion, right? And so there's still so many, and I, I'm I'm kind of. I have this every single day, something happens with one of my friends or somebody that I respect online or whatever, where it's like, man, that really, I love you as a fellow human. I would take a bullet for you. I think you're awesome. I think you know, you're wonderful in doing this, that, and the other, but your worldview is still dangerous, I think. So it's, 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 it's kind of an interesting time, not to say that we're the first people in history to have to deal with this, but it is a very interesting time where we're having to balance those things really carefully on a pretty daily, if not hourly basis. 
Yeah, and getting back to something we were saying earlier, I think the key to having empathetic conversations or useful or interesting conversations is to always have a good portion of your mind willing to be wrong. That when someone talks to you about abortion and you're very uh, pro-choice, you kind of have to put that aside for the conversation and be willing to be convinced that you're wrong. And and, and sometimes you are wrong. I mean, like if you really believe in the scientific principle, then some that you are going to change your mind about all kinds of things. So I try and enter every conversation. If I'm in Miami, Texas, and people are telling me about Jesus and I'm an atheist, like I, I try to put aside that part of my brain and just listen and and be willing to be proven wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk to me about your time with Tucker Carlson. Mm. Um, cause Tucker is, uh, interesting for me. I, I could not, I could not disagree with him more on most things that he says, but I've always, out of all of those kind of really f- famous, popular, wealthy, you know, mostly on Fox news pundits, he's the one that I'm most attracted to. Like I've always sort of, I've always sort of thought, man, I could really like have a beer or six with that guy. Like I would love, 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 you know, Bill O'Reilly, no, like no. name, 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 yeah, name so many of them, even, even liberal ones, like on other MSNBC, like I don't want to hang out with Mika or Joe. Like, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, but <laughs> Tucker's always struck me as like, oh, you rubbed me so wrong, but I could hang with you. And I, I read his book. I recently read his book, Ship of Fools. And, um, and, uh, man, I found myself more than I thought, not totally agreeing, but thinking, dude, first of all. This guy's smart. Like he is not and a good trained. writer. He is a good writer. He's a yeah. magazine writer by trade. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, yeah. He's smart. He's an, he's intelligent. He and he's not saying things flippantly. He's not saying things. So now when I see clips of him, I think okay. Now sometimes he might get caught up in it and he's just saying things to be inflammatory. But I think by and large he's not trying to be inflammatory. And I wish that he would actually go into it more because I think he might have some things to teach us there on, on whatever whatever issue he's talking about on the nightly news or whatever. So anyway, all that to say is like I've always had like a love hate sort of uh, long distance relationship with Tucker Carlson. So how yeah, what was your time with him and what what were your learnings from from that? I knew him a little bit before having gone on his show sometimes. And then when he was on Dancing with the Stars, I thought that was hilarious. So I went and uh, wrote a column about it. And he taught me, I, you know, during his training, I quick stepped with him. And then I watched the results with him on TV. Uh, he knew the results, but the rest of us watching with yeah. him. So I knew him a tiny bit. So I called him. I read the book. I think I was the first one to read the book besides his editor, which I didn't realize. The Ship of Fools. Oh, wow. He had gone from being a libertarian to being a really hardcore populist in a, in a way that everyone who knew him from his previous life was disgusted by. I mean, he was always a conservative, but his fellow conservatives and the liberals who kind of put up with him, or, or liked him, rather, were, were freaked out by this new xenophobic anti-immigrant Tucker Carlson. So I wanted to kind of find out how he had gone from someone who was, I would have guessed, was very anti-Trump, very, uh, and and still sort of anti-Trump, but someone who's jumped on this kind of Steve Bannon populist, you know, bandwagon that's infected most of the world right now. Because remember, we've been talking about Trump, but, but Americans tend to forget that I could point to any country on 
on the map almost, you know, not just Hungary or Turkey, but India, Brazil, I mean, places that have even far more populist leaders than, than xenophobic leaders than Trump. So I wanted to see how he had joined this group. And, um, and that book that you read talks about a lot of the same, he's very concerned about how people react to economic inequality. And he's very concerned about what's happening to the white middle and, and lower middle class and the amount of suicide and drug use and the fact that the uh, average age of death has dropped in that group. And he's wondering why more isn't being done about it. And that's, and he doesn't think, he thinks that when you elect Donald Trump, that is a horrible, stupid thing to do but it's pointing to a real fundamental problem that needs to be addressed. He keeps talking about the engine. It's the engine light was blinking and no one was listening. Yeah. Did, did you, did you come out of your, again, you've known him for a long time, but when you were, uh, you know, you read ship of fools, like, did you, did you find yourself like I did kind of nodding in agreement more than you thought that you would, or did you, did, did or did that not happen for you? It did for sure. Yeah. There, I think I thought that he, pointed to problems and he didn't really give solutions. That's what I was going to ask was the, I, I, I felt like he came up short on solutions. It was a lot of very astutely pointing out problems that we were having, but no solutions. Well, he told me that he worked on the final chapter a lot of like what the solutions should be. And he kept realizing that his solutions were bad. So we just skipped that chapter. Oh, interesting. We'd kind of given up. But he did say to me on the phone that he was questioning democracy itself. And I found oh. that, uh, I remember he said to me, you don't practice democracy for its own sake. And at some point, maybe um, it becomes the, the, you know, 300 million people is pushing the bounds of what democracy can do. And, and if it's not, interesting, if, if, the, if it's not giving you the results you want, then maybe it's not the best process. Uh, governmental, you know, system. And I remember it sounding logical when he said it to me. And then I immediately thought, I'm like, no, like you practice democracy, not because of the outcome, but because of the process. Like the process is everything. Like you, you, yeah, you, you live for your die. You should, you're willing to, people were willing to die so that they had uh, a part, uh, a say in their system. You, so, so it's not about the outcome at all. And I've felt this way so strongly about the Trump administration that like this, he was democratically elected. You don't just impeach him because he's a loser and you don't, you need to, you need to listen to the people. And if the people want something crazy, it's more important that the system stay in place than that we have good leadership. What, did, did he hint at what he was offering as a solution, as, a, as an alternative to democracy, or he was just... Well, we know, right? There's one alternative, and it keeps coming up, and it's a, it's a strong man. It's always a man, and it's authoritarianism. And um, look, that's what happened to Rome, right? Yeah. Like, they got big, and they, the, the system didn't hold as well, and then suddenly everyone started assassinating each other, and you had this, these strong men, and then you had some... Caligula-like thing, which looks a lot to me like the um, masked singer, and then it all ended. Yeah, yeah. So I, I masked singer, by the way, which I finally saw a few minutes of, scares me as much as the Trump administration. Why? 
do you ever, I mean, I know you don't watch much TV. Do you ever consume a piece of culture and you feel 150 years old and like, just like you don't belong on this planet? Oh, all the time. That was it for me. Like the way the show is cut, the references to celebrities I've never heard of, the, the furry culture thing, the video game look of it. It, it was all just like purposely off in a way that I couldn't consume in a, as a person who doesn't consume enough YouTube, TikTok, video game stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued now. I've never seen a second of it. I've heard about it, but I've never watch, seen a second. And well, don't watch from the beginning. Like watch the, the clips. clip in the middle yeah, yeah. or the end or something. I will. I'll just watch, YouTube it later. Watch Sarah Palin. I did see that one going around uh, where she was. Yes, I saw that clip. That was insane. That made me, like the end of civilization. That made me sick to my stomach. I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is a shit show. Like, literally, we're in a game show. We're in this. This This does not seem like, this does not seem real. That's what I remember thinking when I saw that clip. And I, again, I've never, I actually, until now, I'm putting the connection together. I saw the clip, didn't even know it was on this mass Singer thing. I just remember seeing the thing and seeing that it was a real thing. This was not like a doctored meme or whatever. This was her <laughs> doing that. And I just thought, I just remember thinking, what is going on? This is ridiculous. She was almost the leader of the free world. Yes. Like really almost. Yes, she was. Okay. So present day, I think your book in this idea of uh, defending elitism makes more sense than ever because right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Right now we are from the top. And when I say top, I mean, Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, all the way down. We have people that are going back to earlier when I when I talked about you when uh, elitist uh, elites defer to experts and uh, populists defer to their gut, right? They that's the listen. thesis of my book. Like that that's, is, you yeah. need to read the book. That's all it says over and over again. Yes, but I want people to read your book. But yes, that that is it over and over and over again. And I we're seeing that we've seen that the last three years in so many ways. But now we're in the middle of a global pandemic where we we have very clear timelines. I feel like I'm going fucking crazy all the time because. We have these very clear sound bites and timelines of Trump ignoring uh, advice, right? Back to January, right? We know that it's been on his radar and he kept putting it off. We have the timeline. We have the clips of him saying, not a problem. It's 15 now. It'll be zero soon. We've got it under control. And all of a sudden, there are 22,000 as of last night dead. Uh, 1,000, it was like 2,000 people in 24 hours died right here in the US. So we have that it's now not just 15 down to zero. And we have people like I just saw this morning, Fox News contributor Bill Bennett on with, um, I forget The former who. drug czar Bill Bennett? Bennett? Who? The former drug czar Bill Bennett? No, this is Bill Bennett. Uh, he's like a, he's a uh, conservative. He's this old guy. I've never heard of him until this clip, but he's a pundit uh, on- I'm sure it's the former drug czar. It might be. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. So this guy gets on and um, again, I forget what show he was on, but he said- Still, again, this is not, we're pulling up a clip of a month and a half ago. This is today. He says that uh, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is not, it, it, this was not and is not a pandemic. So against all other, it, you know, uh, not advice, against all other realities, against all other truths, we still have people uh, posing as experts getting on saying this is not a pandemic. And then... Um, you know, he's not a doctor, he's not a doctor, not a virologist, not an immunologist, none of those things. He's a pundit and he says those things. Um, and I've seen so many of those. I just saw a pastor here in Tennessee. He's been making news here in Tennessee. He's like 30 minutes from me in Nashville. 
And he has been trying to have his church gathering still. And he's been, you know, he's been drumming up all of this controversy, right? And he gets on the Twitter this morning and says, enough with this. We've got to open America back up. We're, you know, enough with this fear and enough with this, you know, screwing our economy up. We've got to open America back up, right? Again, against the advice of, you know, Dr. Fauci and everybody else that knows what the hell they're talking about. And um, I recently read a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote where he said, one of the greatest challenges in this world is not, is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right. It's not, it's, it's not just that, but it's knowing enough, sorry, but not enough about the subject to know you're wrong, right? Let me say that again. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, we, we don't seem to know how to think these days, not well anyway. Our minds aren't trained. And we don't question when we hear stuff, right? That's why we see these viral posts on social media. It's so easy to share bullshit now. It's a quick two and a half seconds. And then it gets shared to everybody that we know. So I say all that because I think your book is more relevant than ever. What do we, so how then do we live? How, How does your book calling us to, I think your call, I think your call is to, um, well, I won't assume. Do you want more people to become intellectual elites? Do you think people can become that? And do you want more people to become that versus reacting from the gut and saying stupid shit like that, that this is is not and was never a pandemic? Like, what's the what's the solution in this day and age? Well, I, yes, I want more people to uh, become intellectual elites and globalists and move to cities. And yes, I want all of that. Um, but you know, I've been, the pandemic, if I think, and at first I definitely thought, I still think the likely outcome, I mean, I, I predicting is stupid. So I think one outcome is that this is very serious. And a lot of people we all know are going to die and people start having, you know, during the depression, suddenly economists were very valuable. And, and they had been kind of mocked. And suddenly FDR's cabinet was full of, of professors. So I think there's a fair chance, and I think you're already seeing it somewhat, that there's a lot of deferring to experts in a way that we hadn't seen before. And, and, and I don't just mean medical experts. I mean an appreciation for a person like Andrew Cuomo, who seems to be able to run systems uh, and government. So I... I think there's a real possibility that, you know, as I said in the book, because I, I wasn't just talking about government in the book. I was also right. talking about, you know, people who argue with their doctor because they read one article on, w, uh, on WebMD. In fact, I talk about my wife doing that uh, a point with me. Yeah. And then th- that all is fine. But as soon as you get cancer, you start examining those diplomas on your doctor's wall really carefully. So... I think there's a there's a possibility that people are going to li- listen to experts instead of assuming that the Wikipedia article they read makes them as knowledgeable as the person who spent their life studying this. However, there's an equal possibility that we've seen in times of crisis throughout history that people turn even more towards authoritarian figures out of fear and that they allow them to grab mm. more power, which you're seeing like in Hungary has already happened. He, he used uh, Orban used this pandemic as an excuse to become the king of, of what what is nominally a normal place to go visit in Europe. Yeah. Uh, so, and I don't know, you know, as a Jew, I think about like, oh, you know, 
Jews have been blamed during pandemics before. Uh, they were already being blamed for a lot of things. I'm thinking of Hungary specifically, but in lots of, of European countries uh, to a lesser extent in America. So like, do, do we have scapegoating? And maybe it's not the Jews. Like in Poland, it's the gays. And in like America, maybe it's, it's been, for all I know, it could be the Chinese next instead of, you know, it, it seemed like it was going to be the Muslims or Mexicans. Uh, so I don't know how this turns out. I think it, it could go either way. There seems to be this, uh, and, and I'm going to share a quick bit about my story just because I think it plays in here because I'm, I'm reevaluating some stuff as well in my life these days. There was a, a push for a long time, I think, for there to be more, I don't know, I felt it at least in my circles where it was, there There was a push to become, that it, it was not a push maybe, but it was an encouragement or an okay, a stamp of approval on being a jack of all trades versus being a master of one, right? A, a master of a thing. And and I've, I see a lot of my friends and a lot of the people in my world, and how do I say this? I'll just say it. They're not that smart. They're not that intelligent. They don't read. They don't, when they do watch, when they do consume entertainment, it is not masterclass. It is not documentaries. It is not things of that nature. It is just pure, and I'm not saying watching a f- stupid movie is bad. I'm just saying it's all that. It's all video games. It's yeah. all these things. And so I feel like so many of the people in my sphere of influence are not, and I do have some really uber smart, intelligent people. I'm very blessed to have those people in my life as well. But by and large, the culture is pushing for this kind of like, just kind of jack of all trades, get by, you know, sort of thing versus becoming, uh, you know, and I, I'll be honest, I have kind of my story with school is I grew up in Guatemala. Um, I, after graduated from high school, I decided to put school off for a little bit and I wanted to travel the world. And so I got some, I got different gigs and I traveled the world for six years, 25, 30 countries. I would, wouldn't trade that for the world. So all of a sudden I'm 25 now, I get married um, and decide to go to school. But at that point, I already have, I've had six years to kind of observe my friends go, th- some of my friends go through school and a lot of them came out just, I mean, just buried in debt, just feeling the weight of that. And then having to get some like mediocre job that wasn't in their field of expertise, whatever amount of expertise you can have with an undergrad, but they didn't, you know, they weren't getting a teaching job as an English major. They weren't getting a whatever, a whatever job. They were getting a job at a coffee shop or at Target or whatever, maybe a little bit better. And so I just saw all these people around me not living up to what the, you know, the dream that was pitched to me, you know, this bill of sale that, or this, uh, this bill of goods that we were sold. And so I, for a while have been more than not a, a shitter honor of higher education, not for the higher education sake. Again, I've told you this, like I am a perpetual learner. I love learning, but just because of what it does to people, it, it has seemed to hurt in a lot of ways, more than it has done good, at least, again, at least in my world that I live in. So how can we, what's the solution there? Does that make sense? Does the problem I'm posing make sense yeah, to you? And, and, and what do we so, do? What do we do I'm, about that? I'm 48, so I understand what you you're saying. You look good for 48. I look great. This is just me without shaving. I know, I know. You look good, this man. Nothing, yeah. Um, the lighting's not even very good. Here. So yeah, where's your uh, monocle? Where's your monocle, bro? Do you really have it close by? It's fine it was, if you don't. It was like $3 on Amazon, but it is yeah. close by. I no, do have, uh, in Miami, Texas, they did uh, take 
um, Reader's Digest condensed books and carve them into into crosses, which I have here. Oh I've, they also carved it into uh, the like. This was for my son, so it wasn't just crosses. But I can't find the cross right here. Um, How did they press them together? Like, did they just use like glue and like compression or what? No, no, no. This is a book, um, and they oh, just like a book book. Oh, okay. They, yep. they carve around. This is pretty impressive. This is more impressive than the yeah the cross. Um, okay, so anyway, I'm old, and I wasn't made the same promises, or I didn't culturally imbue. And if you go to my parents and their grandparents, there was no like, if you go to college, you will get a great easy job. That wasn't that wasn't the promise. The promise was life is a struggle. It's going to be hard. You're not done when you're 21. Um, this will help you. This is just a tool. The same that like, I don't know, learning how to make shoes is a tool. Uh, this is an expensive tool. And you will, you will be paying it off. And part of the expense isn't just economic. Part of the expense is you're going to have this amazing experience. Uh, and you won't have to work for four years. So you're giving up all kinds of things for it. But I didn't feel like when I graduated college, I was promised anything to be disappointed about if I didn't mm. get it right mm. away. Now, I'm a little millennial in spirit. So when I spent my two years fact-checking, I was depressed and pissed off. And I thought, like, you know, what do I, this isn't working. I'm going to give up. What do I do next? I'm going to go to law school or I'm going to, like, do. But just the thought that a, human, a degree in the humanities would get me anything, I knew better then. So I came from a slightly different perspective, also got luckier. Um, so, I, so I don't know. Also, oh, oh also, I didn't, my, my parents paid for my college. So I didn't walk away with that debt. So I'm, I'm talking out of my ass a lot here. That said, um, but you know, I'm, I'm asking you because you're still in that world and you know enough, even if it wasn't your world, like, you know, you know, what's going on, you know, the realities, but I still want to push people to be smart, be intellectual, to, to push and themselves worth it. Like, look, we, we're conning untold amount of people with these for-profit colleges that should clearly be shut down. Yeah. Uh, hopefully if we get a democratic president, who's not friends with all these, you know, these scammers will we'll shut down these colleges because they're doing no one a favor. And if you talk to, I have a cousin who was a salesperson for one of these colleges and my God, what they say to you on the phone, like, you know, back in the day it was, do you watch CSI? Oh, do you want to be a forensic? You know, um, it was horrifying. So not every college, not everyone should go to college. Not, uh, not every college should exist. And, uh, and we should do more to help people pay for college. Like, but, but there, there are systemic answers to this. Yeah. That said, I do think it can be a very valuable experience for, I'd say, most people. We're going to begin to wrap up. I've got a few more questions, a few more things that I want to I want to ask you about. One of those, I'm going to ask you for two different sets of advice right now, just off the cuff, just random things that come to mind. The first set so of paint, advice, either either paint both fingers on both hands or just one. I know, but just it's not working. I know. Yeah. I, I actually have the, I have the nail polish in there for the other one. And I just, it's been so busy, okay. dude. I got, it's, it's crazy, but yes, I will, I will get to that. I promise. Jesus. Um, the first set of advice is on besides college, right? Besides the, the obvious, like go to a, 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 a an institution of higher learning to become an intellectual elite, 
right? For the good of humanity, right? Not for your own gain, not to get the money necessarily, but for the good of humanity, right? To be a better human. Besides college, university, what are some very practical things that, okay, so I'm going to frame the let's give a damn audience for you right now. 60% women, 40% men, mostly, what's that? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, mostly millennials, but we do have, man, I've got a, a kind of a smattering of like younger kids and older people that listen to this as well, but it is mostly like, you know, 18 right. to 40 in there. And all of these people want to make a difference, right? That's why I started this thing. That's why they listen mostly in North America, 75 other countries. There's people of all, of all shapes and sizes listening right now. And they want to do good in the world. They want to be solutions people, right? They don't just want to point out the problem. They want to, they want to create solutions. So with that in mind, what are some things that people can do to, uh, you know, maybe aspire one day to be uh, in the intellectual elite so that they can be problem solvers in the world and they can offer something more than gut reactions? I'm not a big advice giver. I think yeah, I'm a more of a listener that I am. I'm not a solution offerer. I'm uh so, so when I wrote this book, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book and offer people a solution on how to get out of here. Like that seemed so far down the road and for some other, from an expert, my job was to just figure out what's going on right now, which I feel like people often jump to what is the solution to this problem before they even get to what is the problem. So, yeah. so all I wanted to do in the book was like, let's even figure out what this problem is and why people are doing this before we figure out what, how to tell them not to do it or fix it. So, so I'm not nearly at the state where I can, I'll never be at the point where I can offer a solution. It's not what I do. I just, uh, I'm here to show you what the, what's going on. At Fair best. enough. So uh, that said, if you want to do that kind of thing and figure out what's going on, I would suggest that you spend less time thinking about American politics and spend a l- more time broadening your perspective by looking historically and that can just be at america or that can be at the world um and and even maybe more importantly look globally like you should have a working knowledge of what's going on in south america and in uh india and in the middle east and europe in order to understand what's going on here like knowing the differences between like amy klobuchar and cory booker is so much less important than having a working understanding of Victor Orban or uh, or Modi. Those are the kind of things that let you, like, it just drove me crazy when people say, well, Trump won because we had a black president. I was like, really? Because there's a Trump in every country now and they didn't have black presidents. Like Boris Johnson didn't come about because there was a, you know, a black prime minister. So, so I encourage people to do that. Do you think that will also help give us an appreciation for what we have. I mean, I'm the first one to, again, I've got a laundry list of issues with this country, especially growing up uh, for many years overseas and spending a lot of time around the world in almost every continent. I I have a better, uh, I think, a better perspective than most people on what's happening in the world, right? But I, even me, with this kind of global worldview, global perspective, I can get a little bit narrow-minded and myopic about like how shitty things are here. But when you do have a kind of a bigger picture of the world and you understand how other people have to live, right? How the the, the governments of other, of other countries, then you're like, Oh wait, it's not so bad here. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, there are things that are keeping Donald Trump and, and people like him in check every single day. 
And we should thank God and our lucky stars that that is in place versus what you talked about in Hungary or other countries where I saw these police dudes beating the shit out of guys with sticks because in India, because they weren't adhering to the, I'm all for people respecting other people and staying home. Like I want stay home, don't go out. But I don't think people should fear getting the shit beat out of them if they do go out. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's other things. Or just for being Muslim in India. Or for being Muslim. Yes. There's so much going on. But I think having that bigger worldview also helps from a, okay, things are not great here and we should aspire to better things. We should aspire to have better leaders, ones that don't have megalomaniacal tendencies, but it's not that bad at the end of the day. So quote I have towards the beginning of my book from Ronald Reagan which is a story he liked to tell, which was, I'm going to screw up the story. I should just have my book in front of me. But the story is um, the American is talking about uh, how lucky they are to live in America because we have all these freedoms. And the Cuban guy was like, uh, is like, no, I'm lucky that I was in Cuba because America existed. I.e., the story is so much better than this, but the idea is like, you're not so lucky to be in America. Cause if this, you're all anyone has, like when their country goes to crap, they come to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that you makes can't sense. Let this place fall apart. Yeah. We are blessed in so many ways, um, that we need to, yeah, it's good. To, it's good to be reminded of that. It's good to be reminded yeah. that, that things aren't falling apart outside my, like I can, my kids can play in the yard without fear of like some weird shit going down. Right. And, 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 um, yeah, we're, we're the, that perspective change is really good. Okay, I'm not going to ask you for advice, but I am going to ask for a prediction. Do you want me to tell more Reagan stories? <laughs> I, 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 I yeah. do. I'll, I'll have to cut oh, out man. a lot of pauses. Yeah, that's right. I'll have to cut out. I'll have to tell my editor to cut out a lot of pauses. Um, prediction. No. What's, no prediction. God, no. The, that's how you get in trouble. I know. Not like a prediction. No like one I'm gonna knows. Hope. It's all unknown. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for comfort Everyone for this, co- for this, that's, for this coming Scott November. Adams part of my book, Scott Adams just is like all about like, all that matters is having a story that leads to a prediction, but like, oh God, who would have predicted, so look where we are right now. Like you would yep. have predicted this three months ago that we'd all be staying inside for the rest of our lives. You're right. I, with, I withdraw my request for a prediction. Good. Um, let's just hope that bigger and better things happen in the days ahead leading up to November. Cause, um, and if they don't, and if they don't, we're going to be okay. Like, we'll figure this out, right? Like, I think we will. We did four years. Three years ago, waking up in my bed, I was like, oh, shit, this country is about to fall apart. Here we are three years yeah. later. Things aren't amazing, but they are way better, as you pointed out, than I thought they'd be at this point. I mean, really? Like, I thought it would be way worse than it is, and here we are, generally and speaking. And also, I, I, for the moment, at least, I'm really less concerned about politics uh, than I was two, you know, three months ago. That's good. Like I know people want to blame Trump and certainly he, he is wildly incompetent and ill-informed, but this is a pandemic that's happening everywhere. Maybe some countries are reacting a little better and some a little worse, but people are dying and will be dying all over the world. And, and seeing how our lives are changing so dramatically and will for probably quite a while is fascinating to me. And, and really much more important than who our president is. Yeah. Okay. This is the big question. It's the one I ask every guest at the end of our, at the end of the conversation. It's really the only question that kind of is in, is in every conversation. Part of it is hypothetical. Part of it is not. The not hypothetical part is that someday, many, many decades from now, you are going to die. Uh, that's inevitable. 
What a weird way to find out on this podcast. It's it's yep. I'm telling you right now. Um, but but you're you gonna just live. Laid it out there. You didn't even like. You had no bedside matter with that. But at least your life is going to be long and fruitful, and you got like 15 more books to come. I'm not trying to make any predictions here. But the the hypothetical part is that I have been asked to give your eulogy. So at the end of your life, all your family and your friends, the people you've impacted, it's a big room filled with lots of people. And I, for some reason, have been asked to celebrate and mourn your life and legacy in a few sentences or how I used to say in a few sentences and then everybody kind of droned on uh, when I asked this question. So in a few sentences, however long you want to take, what do you hope that I would say on that day about your life and your legacy? My shortest answer is I don't give a damn. I mean, I really, I, I feel like that kind of thinking about, I know you're getting at something else, but the kind of thinking about your legacy and how history remembers you, it, it, just starting to think that way gets you so far out of the present and gets you so far into this ego and into believing look, X number of years from now, no one's going to remember Shakespeare, right? And think about how many presidents you can name. Those are presidents of the United States and you don't know who most I get of them it. are. Yep. It doesn't matter, man. Like you yeah. just got to do, I never say man, but it seemed useful there. Yeah. Uh, you you got to be a good person at this moment, not worry about some legacy. I love that. Here's why I love that. Because again, you didn't just say like, I'm not going to answer that. But the answer was so spot on in that I sometimes, well, what was that? Oh, we have a quarry next to our house and they just, they, every couple days they, you know, explode rock or whatever. And it always sounds like something is blowing up next to our house because it is like a third of a mile away. So sorry. It's the, like the, Owen Meany. This is amazing. The, the I thought you'd like have shirk. like a bachelorette parties drinking on, on those motor, those bicycles with 50 people on them. Not is that during- by your house? No, no, no. We are in, we are just outside of downtown. That mostly sticks in downtown in a, in a neighborhood called East Nashville. We don't get it where we are. We're in a neighborhood called The Nations and um, they, they're too lazy to come out here. We're like 10 minutes outside of downtown. But uh, no, but we do, have, we do have dynamite going off a third of a mile away. But what I like about your answer is that, you know, there's this, uh, f- f- growing up as a Christian, there was always this phrase for people like that which is he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good, right? So someone that's always thinking about the afterlife, oh, right? Someone that's always thinking about like, what's God, how's God gonna perceive me? Am I gonna get all these rewards? Is he gonna love what I did here on earth versus just fucking being here, just being present, being in the, like you're saying, in the present, being a good person, being kind, giving a damn now. And you're so right. I can't name half the presidents. And and even though Shakespeare is this global name, he's a household name, how often do we actually think about him? Like very infrequently. Or just name your other person that's done amazing yeah, people things. people go in and out. Like people had forgotten Bach for a while and then they remembered Bach. Like there's no, who knows? Like there's no, you got, you have no legacy. Like Dude, uh, what's the Egyptian phrase? You, the Egyptians think about it the opposite way, which is you, although it's a very short period too, you die when the last person who knew you dies you die a second death but that's a short period of time too it is in the in the grand in the grand scheme of things okay now what you've done joel is that you've made me rethink asking that question at the end or maybe i just need to rephrase it because i do i love thinking about my legacy but at the same time i don't for the same for the reasons that you just outlined and so now i have to think through whether i want to ask it that way or not thanks a lot i appreciate that that's what i do that's what you do. You, you just rustle things up. Joel, this has been an absolute pleasure. 
I hope too. Good, good. I'm glad. I, I had so much fun. I could talk to you for hours. The book, I'm going to- You gonna did. Re- you I, actually did. Yes. And I'm going to reread okay. it again. I'm going to tell everybody to go buy it because I think it's really, really, really helpful. Um, and if you write another great book, which I know you will, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that one at some point too. Thanks. But um, this was so much fun. Uh, thanks for joining me. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. It was nice meeting you in the way that we meet people nowadays. Yes. Yes, exactly. Dear friends, thank you so much for joining my conversation with Joel Stein today on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Before I go, here's what I want to point out for you. Here's why I think this conversation is important. I hope at this point, if you've listened this far, you are now seeing the benefits of listening to learning from Joel Stein, right? Some of you may have been questioning why I would have somebody on with that book title, but I hope you're not questioning that anymore. I hope you've learned a ton. Here's why I think this conversation is important. There are many reasons, but one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to Joel and I wanted to talk to Joel in front of you is because I know so many of you aren't just listening to this podcast for entertainment, right? Some of you may be, and that's fine. We do have some great conversations. I think I'm half good at what I do. Many of you, however, are looking for me and to let's give a damn for help and guidance as we navigate these tricky times that we live in. Guidance for how to give a damn now and in the future. And I think Joel is right, friends. I think we need more people that don't speak and live from their gut. I'm not saying you can't always give a gut reaction. I'm not saying you can't say, I feel this way. What I am saying is to effectively teach and guide people, we need to do it out of expertise and out of years of experience, years of living, years of leading, years of learning and being endlessly curious and asking good questions. So I hope you got that and so much more out of this conversation. I'd love for you to follow Joel on Twitter and Instagram at the Joel Stein. He has great conversations on there. He poses great questions. He shares great stuff. And so I hope you go follow him there and engage with him there. And as always, you can find Let's Give a Damn on all the socials at Let's Give a Damn. You can find me on all the socials at Nick LaPara. And please hit me up at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. If you need anything at all, if you have any ideas, thoughts you want to share with me, or if you have any ideas for how you and I can partner together to make this world a better place, I am all ears. Some of my best and the most favorite things that I've ever done, most favorite, is that a thing? Most favorite things I've ever done have been from somebody reaching out and saying, hey, I have this idea. I have this thought. Do you want to do it? So go do that for me. This show was created by Chad Snavely and me. The music is by our friend Propaganda. We are part of the Matter Media family. We're so grateful for their partnership and their work on our behalf and with us. Please share this episode with people you like and with people you don't like. Just make sure to share it. It takes fewer than 15 seconds to hit the share button in your podcast app. Copy the link. Send it to a friend right now via email, via text, via whatever. Just send it to them. And if you have a few extra seconds of energy, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That helps us tremendously. It really, really does. Friends, I can't wait to spend time with you next week. We have more incredible conversations coming. I have these amazing chats lined up for the next few weeks with just wonderful folks that are giving a damn during this weird time of life in many different ways. So please don't miss out. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any conversations. I'm sending so much love and light to each and every one of you. Keep giving a damn. Peace. Peace.